Come on back down and find them comfortable pink-covered pews. All right, don't put that in the recording online, by the way. That'd be good if we edit that part out. Awesome, really glad you're here. And uh, if you have your Bibles, we're, as Rich mentioned, finishing Romans chapter 8, which has got to be one of many of our favorite chapters in the whole Bible. So get, get your Bible ready in Romans chapter 8. And as we get into this last section, it is super encouraging. I mean, just super encouraging. And, and in order to try and get your mind wrapped around how encouraging it can be, Here's the way I roll. I'm going to start off with something down, low, okay? And then just try and point out some stuff to show you how much better God is, okay, for us than really what a lot of the world suffers with. And so uh, we're going to talk about the security of the believer. That's what the end of this chapter is all about. And that is a great promise. It is a great encouragement for all of us. But when we think about the great blessing that is to our lives, we've got to start off by just considering some characteristics of people who suffer from a lot of insecurities, and there's a lot of people who, who do that. I mean, even Christian people. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why we look at ourselves in the mirror, we, we consider life in general, and for whatever reason, a lot of people think uh, they're, they're just not very secure in who they are and, and who God made them to be and that sort of a thing. And so I just made a brief list of some characteristics that really just off the top of my head, after years of doing ministry and counseling people and helping them out, uh, just consider some of these things. I'm not trying to diagnose anybody. I'm just giving you some insight into how insecure people can manifest their insecurities. Uh, one of the ways that's the most obvious maybe is if you're highly insecure, you will tend to be in high control of your environment. You want to be a controller. You want to make sure that everything is under control because if it's not in your control, then, then you're very insecure about how it might play out. Sometimes these people can actually escalate to be abusers. And whether that be just verbal abuse, or whether it be emotional abuse, or even going to the point of physical abuse, um, they can't endure the intimidation or the threat that might come on their lives, and so they kind of lash out in protection. Uh, people who are insecure are typically jealous. People who are insecure tend to always be focused on guilt, whether it's their guilt or pl placing guilt on somebody else. They, they are the kinds of people who frequently always seem like they have to have an answer to whatever question comes up. If somebody questions them or asks or wonders or a subject is being discussed, the kind of person who just always has an answer, sometimes you talk to people, you know they don't know that answer. But they come across with an answer because they can't, they don't have the, the internal security of being to be able to just say, you know what, that's a good question, I don't know. I just don't know. And, and that's okay, because face it, there's a lot of stuff we just don't know. Uh, people who are insecure, obviously, need a lot of constant, regular, personal reassurance. They're the kind of people that if you don't continually reinforce their worth and all that sort of thing, it's, it's hard for them. Uh, so a lot of times they're defensive. Uh, a lot of times they end up being just very needy. They're very clingy people. Uh, and again, in and of themselves, some of these things, I mean, we all get a little bit of this in our lives. I don't want you all thinking, oh man, I thought I was okay until now. I'm just kind of throwing that out there because these are just typical ways that insecurity is manifested in people's lives. But here's the deal. If we are secure in our personal relationships, then would you not agree that generally speaking in, in the rest of the challenges of life that come our way, that we'll handle them better? I mean, the, the, the self-help, the self-esteem section of your local bookstores has no shortage of sales. 
for a reason. Because a lot of people suffer with these issues and they have anxiety over them. But the good news is obviously where we're going is Romans 8. God gives us all the assurance we need. God gives us all the value that we need. God tells us everything we need to know because in life, there is no more important interpersonal relationship than your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, your relationship with your husband or wife even is second to the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Your relationship with the Lord makes your marriage even stronger. And so it certainly is the most important relationship. And if we have security in the truth of our security, if we understand that in our lives and our relationship with Jesus, that truth will set us free in all other areas of our life. Jesus said himself, you'll know the truth, the truth will make you free. And so that's what we're going to see today. We're going to look in Romans chapter 8. And in Romans 8, really, the whole study has just been awesome. I hope if you've been here, you've really enjoyed it. It's very encouraging. It's very practical. But at the same time, it gives us real Bible theology. I mean, it really is one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. And you should be motivated. You should be encouraged. You should be challenged. You should be empowered to walk with God in the power of his Holy Spirit as a result of what he tells us in Romans chapter 8. And that's kind of the theme that we've seen, walking in the Spirit and how that plays out in the life of a believer. So from verses 31 to 39, the last uh, nine verses of this chapter are what we're going to look at today. And what we're going to see are seven questions that are posed. And not surprisingly, these seven questions fall into three categories. Okay, so a good sermon has to have three main points, so we've got to have that. So that's what we got. The security of the believer. That's our title. You ready? You all ready? All right, follow along. I'm going to start reading verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the church all said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious truth. Thank you for the good news. There's a lot of bad news in life. But man, your good news trumps all bad news. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what you sacrificed so that we could get in on it. Thank you that all this is offered to us freely. And my prayer, Lord, is for all of us. We all suffer. We all go through difficulties at different times and at different levels. But my prayer is for all that are here today that are really struggling, that they would be able to find once and for all the meaning of life and their value in nothing other than a personal relationship with you. And understanding what you've done and understanding how you transform a life, we can stand on our two feet in the power of the Holy Spirit and be more than conquerors. Lord, transform us so that we can glorify you again. We pray in your holy name. Amen. 
Well, again, the security that we get in our relationship with Jesus Christ is going to set us free from three specific things. And the first thing we're going to see is it's going to set us free from opposition. It's going to set us free from opposition. And this is verses 31 and 32. And the first two questions come out of that verse. It says, what shall we then say to these things? Let me just say that these things could be everything we've seen up until verse 30 of chapter number 8. But most specifically, what shall we say then to these things? The these things are really going to refer to the things that are against us. The things that have stood uh, in opposition to our progress. The things that cause us to suffer and have difficulties. Last week we talked about problems and having the right perspective in the difficulties and struggles and problems of daily life. And so the second question, if God be for us, who can be against us? In a sense, the second question is rhetorical. In a sense, the second question answers the first question, does it not? And what shall we say to these things? Well, what we're going to say is, man, if God's for us, who can be against us, right? And that's kind of the answer to the first question. So let's just consider that question. Who can be against us? Well, you know, if you've lived any life at all, the, the real answer is a lot of people, right? I mean, think about it, right? I mean, let's not be too religious yet. I mean, a lot of people can be against us, right? How about, let's just make it real easy. The devil can be against us. How about this world system is set on a course against us? How about your flesh is against you? How about all the human beings who are controlled by any number of those three things then set their course to be against you? Have you ever noticed that? Of course. If you are trying to live a successful life in the Lord Jesus Christ, what you're going to find is there are people who are against you. And sometimes those people can be your very closest people in your life. They can be your friends. They can be your family. They can be your co-workers. They can be people that you actually respect and see frequently. That's possible that that can all come against you. In other words, he's not saying that there's nobody who ever shows up to try and be against us. That's not what he's trying to say, right? What he's really saying is who can successfully be against us? That, that's really the question, is it not? Who can successfully stand against us? And, and that question is rhetorical because it's nobody. <laughs> Nobody's going to successfully, in other words, who can rival God's support for you? Nobody can rival God's support for you. It says, if God be for us, right, whoever thinks they want to stand against us doesn't stand a chance, man, <laughs> Right? And so that's awesome. In, verse, in Psalm 118, verse number six, similar idea. It says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. Think about that. The Lord is on my side. Isn't that cool? God is for you, man. He's in your corner, right? He's on your team. He, he's, he's on your side. And, and all through the Bible, and we're not going to take the time to do it because it would just take too long, but let me just remind you of some of the ways that God is for you. He is, he is in your corner. He is pulling for you. He teaches you, okay? He leads you. He prays for you, as we see in this passage, as we saw last week as well. He provides for you, amen? We enjoy a healthy, comfortable life, almost all of us. He provides for us. He protects us. He warns us. He prepares us for storms that might be coming. He prepares us. He equips us. He grows us up. He matures us. He stands before us. He stands beside us. He stands behind us. He is with us everywhere we go. He is for us. 
and he, and he sets this hedge about us and he literally just watches over every step and moment of our lives. If God be for us, why are we worried about people who think they want to try and stand against us? Do you get that? Because there are people who think that way. Romans chapter 3, if we can remind you back in verse number 4, it says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? In other words, do we have to go by the majority rule to determine if the things that are true are true? Of course not. Ridiculous. Romans is full of rhetorical questions that the answer is obvious. No way. God forbid. Okay? So the question, who can successfully stand against us? Going on to the third question in this series of verses, verse 32, he gives more explanation when he says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Another rhetorical question. In other words, obviously he will also. He gave us Jesus. He gave us his only begotten son. He gave us the greatest gift ever. Certainly he will also give us anything else that you could possibly need. Because every other gift that you might receive from the Lord, every other thing that God may give to you, it's smaller in comparison to the gift of his son. Is that right? We'd agree with that, right? We ought to say amen out loud. Let's practice. Ready? Amen, amen. That's great. There's, it's obvious. So when we read verses like James 1 and verse 17, where it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We understand that anything that's of any value, anything that's any good in your life, it's in your life because it's a gift from God. God is the one who gives all those gifts, but in comparison to the ultimate gift of his only begotten son, those are smaller. All of those are smaller things, right? So basically saying, if he didn't withhold his son from you for your benefit, why would he withhold little stuff? Why would he do that? There is no need to worry about any of these things. Okay, so just to clarify a little bit, this thing about all things, will he not freely give us all things? Well, first of all, all things is not everything you want. It's not everything you want. You're like, I want a new Mercedes Benz. I didn't got that yet. You know what I mean? Or whatever it is on your list. You know what I mean? And so I, everything, he doesn't give me all things. Well, that's not the point. The point is not that he will give you everything your evil heart lusts after. That's not what he's saying. Right? What he is saying is, I'll give you all things, in other words, everything you need to live successfully for Jesus Christ. That's what he's giving you. That's literally what all things is, right? I will freely also, since I gave you Jesus, give you everything you need to be able to successfully live and walk in the Spirit, to be able to conquer all the fears, to be able to not worry about the, those who would try and oppose you, the opposition that might come against you. Let me give you some examples from the life of Paul when he was in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. He's meeting with the Ephesian elders and he makes this statement. Just notice how it's used. I have showed you all things. There's the phrase. And he goes on to say, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul's talking to these Ephesian elders and he says, look, I've showed you all things. Well, I bet there's some stuff Paul didn't show him. I bet he didn't show him how to build a rocket. I mean, I bet he didn't show him how to hit a curveball, right? I bet he didn't show him how to do CPR, or how to speak Chinese. I mean, there's a lot of stuff Paul didn't show them, right? But he showed them everything they needed 
to walk successfully in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. That's clearly what it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Notice, behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. When you receive the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, the Bible very clearly says that you are no longer your old self. You are a new creature. You are a spiritual son of God. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and old things are passed away. By the way, this is one of the most encouraging truths of the Scripture for people who have been plagued with very bad behavior prior to salvation. I had some very bad behavior prior to my salvation. And a lot of times people are so plagued with addictive behaviors that after they get saved, they still can't seem to break free from that. Please just know the truth of God where it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, y'all. Those old things no longer have any hold on you. All things are become new, and the all things that are become new are given to you. Why? So that you can carry out God's ministry of reconciliation, of reconciling sinful men to a holy God. God has given each and every one of you a ministry, and it's defined explicitly in verse 18. It's the ministry of reconciliation. And he has given you everything you need so that you can carry out that ministry. A little further in 2 Corinthians chapter number 9 and verse number 8, it's a chapter that deals with giving financially and sacrificially. It's a, a chapter that deals with missions. It's a chapter that deals with reaching out to the world. And when you are faithfully serving the Lord and demonstrating that in your life, he goes on and he gives some promises. In verse number 8 it says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye have always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. And so that's the idea that he's saying. Is, Look, I'm going to freely give you all things so that you can successfully walk with the Lord. Your security in Jesus Christ does not free you from people trying to oppose you. People will try to oppose you. But your security in Jesus Christ makes you free from them being successful at stopping you. Do you understand that? So the opposition is literally of no account. It really doesn't matter. If you just remember the things that we've learned in Romans 6, 7, and 8, and that is to know the truth that you are dead in Christ, to reckon yourselves to be dead, to believe it, to apply it to yourself, to yield yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit and his leadership in your life, and then just walk in this new life in Christ. So you remember those four words, you understand Romans 6, 7, and 8. To know, to reckon, to yield, and to walk. And, and that really is the, whole, that is the whole gist of what God expects of us in our lives. All right, what's the next thing we're free from? We're also free from condemnation. We're free from condemnation, and we're going to look at verses 33 and 34. The next question that we see, it's the fourth in the order. It's in verse 33. It says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And in uh, verse 33, and then verse 34, it says, who is he that condemneth? In other words, to lay something to the charge of God's elect. In other words, it's an accusation, right? Who is he that is going to condemn you? Who is he that's going to accuse you? Who is he that's going to bring some charge against you? And it is set up again like the other questions as though there is nobody. But you have to understand there are people who will try, right? The devil will try. That's what the Bible says about him. In Revelation chapter 12, 
and verse number 10, it literally says, now the context is the tribulation, I get it. But nevertheless, it gives us some insight into who the devil is. And it says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The accuser of our brethren is the devil, the serpent, the Antichrist. And that is what God calls him, the accuser of the brethren. What is he engaged in? He is engaged in accusing your guilt before the Father day and night. Do you see, Jeff? Do you see how evil he is? Do you see how carnal it is? I can't believe you would ever choose to use that rotten scoundrel. And you know what? There's some truth to that. But at the same time, it doesn't really matter because it's all taken care of in Jesus Christ. And that's what this passage is all about. That's what we're learning here. Because when it comes down, those accusations, those condemnations that might be thrown your way, they have no real power. Why? Because it's God that justifies Remember the definition of the word justify, right? Just as if I'd never sinned, right? And so I am clean, I am righteous because of Christ, not because of me. So the condemnation was already taken care of in Jesus Christ when he died on the cross on Calvary. Verse 34 goes on and just in explanation, it says, it's Christ that died, see? Yea, rather, that is risen again. In other words, the death, that's cool. But the risen part is really cool, Right? who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. If you went back to verse 26, you remember last week, the Holy Spirit prays for us and helps our infirmities, makes intercession for us. Now we see Jesus makes intercession for us. So the Godhead is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Son and the Spirit are both engaged in active intercessory prayer to the Father on your behalf. Is that wild? That's awesome. Two-thirds of the Trinity prays to the other third to make sure that you're doing good. How about that? Does that make you feel good? You need to read a self-help book to get that? Listen, this is great, man. This is what he does for us. And because he's done all that for us, who's he that's going to condemn you? Who's he that's really going to accuse you? Who's he who's really going to stand and have something stick against you? Nobody. There's nobody like that. That's impossible. That's not going to happen. You are free from that. You are free from the accusation. You are free from the condemnation. Let them try. Let them talk. They will, but don't worry about it. The fact of the matter is there are people. There are people who are controlled by the world, the flesh, the devil. There are people who will throw accusations your way. There are people who will watch you at your job, at school, and maybe you lose it. Maybe you lose control of, of, of you know, your thoughts for a moment and you say something you shouldn't have said or you behave in a way that's not becoming to the testimony of the Lord. And somebody says, uh-huh, 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 see, see, you say you're a Christian. That's probably happened to all of us, right? Well, that happens. Look, face it. I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven, right? At the end of the day, those accusations, although the fact of the matter is we blow it from time to time, they'll never stick because of what Jesus did. That's what he's trying to teach us. Man, you are secure in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3 starts off by telling us that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And then it gives a long list down through verse number five of various characteristics of all of these perils that can come into our lives in these last days. And in verse number three, among the list, right in the middle, it says there's false accusers. False accusers. So listen, don't be naive. 
Don't think that because you receive Christ, everything's just going to be rosy and warm and fuzzy and great and teddy bears and all that stuff. I mean, life is tough, man, and people will accuse you and people will condemn you and people will judge you and people will give accusations towards you. But that don't mean it's true, right? Because Christ died for you. You're free from that stuff. They falsely accuse Jesus Christ. They falsely accuse the Apostle Paul. You think you're better than them? They'll falsely accuse you too. Just let it roll off, off your back like water off a duck's back. Just let it roll, man. Don't worry about it. Let them do what they're going to do. You do what you're going to do. And that's going to happen to you every time you stand to effectively serve the Lord. When you try and stand and walk in the Spirit, you will find the opposition come. If you find that there is absolutely no opposition whatsoever to your life in Christ, maybe you're not serving the Lord and the devil's like, I'm leave him alone. He's doing just fine on his own. Right, there's an old preacher saying that, you know, if a guy's preaching or whatever and you feel like the preaching is rubbing your fur the wrong way, you ever heard that saying that says, man, if I'm rubbing your fur the wrong way, maybe you ought to consider turning the cat around. Right, so now I'm rubbing it the right way. In other words, you're pointing the wrong direction, man. No wonder it's rubbing you the wrong way. And that's what's going on. In, if your life is pointing the wrong way, you're probably doing great with the world. They love you, man. But if you're walking with the Lord, you're going to have some, you're going to have some people oppose you. You're going to have some people try and condemn you. Okay, so it's like a courtroom trial. Okay, and 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 1 kind of sets that up for us. Where the prosecution that's trying to accuse you, like it said, the accuser of the brethren, that's the devil. But you have a defense attorney, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, which we do, by the way, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Isn't that awesome? I mean, if you're on trial for something bad, don't you want Jesus as your defense attorney? <laughs> so the prosecutor is the devil, and the defense attorney is Jesus. The accused, that's you, right? And the judge is God the Father, right? And so the devil goes before the judge, and he's like, Jeff is guilty, he's done this, and he's thought that, and he's said this, and he treated people bad, and he did all that stuff. And Jesus steps up, and he says, yeah, but I already paid for that. I've already taken that condemnation. I've already taken that judgment. I've already taken care of all those issues that Jeff, yeah, he did those things, but it's okay. I've already taken care of it. And the father says, case dismissed. You're free to go. That's your life in Christ, man. That's what he gives to you. Listen, y'all don't shout much. Y'all really ought to get a little more excited. I'm going to like import some Pentecostals or something. I feel like we got to do better. I mean, you can't shout at the end of Romans 8, really. I mean, you know, what's the saying? You know, if this don't light your fire, your wood's wet. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know that story of the woman caught in adultery? That's John chapter 8. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they catch this woman. They bring her to Jesus, and they say, we caught this woman in adultery. This is crazy. Even in the very act. Wow. And they bring the woman to Jesus. Why didn't they bring the dude? I never figured that out unless maybe one of them was the dude. Something to think about. So they bring the woman to Jesus. We caught her in the very act, and Moses and the law would condemn her. What sayest thou? And Jesus is smooth, man. He actually doesn't say anything, so he gets down in the dirt, and he starts writing stuff. The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. And finally, one by one, all the accusers, they file out. Whatever Jesus wrote got to them. They file out. And they can't stand in front of Jesus anymore because he probably said something like, you know, you that are without sin, cast the first stone, right? 
And so he turns to the woman, John chapter 8 and verse number 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And so, like that woman, truly, we're guilty. We are. But we're forgiven. We're forgiven. And once that happens, you can't be tried twice for the same crime, right? That's double jeopardy. That's what we call it. Once you've been tried and the case is closed, it's done. We can't bring it up anymore. You can't rightly or justly be accused or condemned at a level that will stick because Jesus Christ has already paid for it. It's the greatest thing in the world. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Who in their right, with all due respect, who in their right mind hears this and says, no, thank you? I'll never understand it. And I get it that sometimes people need time to process the truth of the gospel. In my life, I was 22 years old, when I heard the gospel for the very first time ever, I know that sounds weird, 22, and I never heard the gospel before, but that's true. I I accepted it right then and there because it made sense. Yes, I want that. Who doesn't want that? It doesn't make any sense to me. Who would say no thank you? Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1, we started off this journey in chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And there is a dual application of verse number 1 as we saw. There is an application that in the here and now, if you walk in the flesh, there are consequences to your sin. Yes, that's true. But there is an eternal positional application that is absolutely secure that in Christ Jesus, there is no more condemnation for you. He was condemned on your behalf. And you are free. And that's the greatest thing in the world. So your security in Jesus Christ, again, does not free you from others attempting to accuse you. Because they will try. But you're free from actually being condemned. You are free from having any of that stick You're eternally secure in Jesus Christ. That's awesome. All right, lastly, we're free from separation. Free from separation. I'm going to get a drink of water because this is really good and I'm just going to go off. Verses 35 to the end. Questions 6 and 7, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The the question, we'll call it question seven, is really just a continuation. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Again, a rhetorical question. Of course not. None of those things. Seven things particularly listed here in this list. It's not all that different from what Jesus said back in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. And he said, And I give unto them eternal life, talking about his sheep, his people. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And if that was true, think about this for a second, dispensationally. Think about that theologically, for those of you that can track this. If that was a true statement that Jesus made when he made it, and it certainly was, 
before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, how much more is it true now that all that is done? How much more is that true for you and for me now after the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection has taken place? Listen, you're secure. You cannot be separated from the love of Christ. I'm not going to take you there again. The last couple of weeks, we've gone to a list in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. And some of those things are up here. And Paul, what he has in these verses is kind of just a, a, a self-testimony, a little autobiography of some of the troubles he's gone through in his life and ministry and, and just the terrible things that have happened to him on his journey of serving the Lord. And you could easily break down the list that Paul has in 2 Corinthians 11 into those seven categories that are in Romans chapter 8. It doesn't really matter if you do that point for point or not. The point is, there's a lot of stuff going on, right? And Paul would have experienced it all. And, and, and the thing I'm trying to point out to you is this. When Paul wrote, of course it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but when Paul says that none of these things can separate us, when he said that, it was, listen, it was not just theory in his life. It was actually practice. Paul, under, he knew what he was talking about. Okay, and that's what I want you to understand. I mean, here's really the lesson I want you to get. Truth is truth, but it becomes more powerful when you personally experience it. Uh, stop and think about that. Let me say that again. Truth is truth. Listen, if there's truth out there in the universe that God has given us, and you have yet to experience it, it doesn't make it any less truth. Truth is truth. But it becomes a lot more powerful in your life when you put it to the test. When you have to walk down the path of difficulty and you personally experience God's deliverance in your life, you're like, wow. Like, as though we're shocked. That really worked. <laughs> but it does. It becomes more powerful. And when Paul writes these things, he knows of which he, he speaks, right? A few chapters later, we'll get to it later in Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, 1 and 2, very popular couple of verses of Scripture say this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, we'll study that when the time comes, but just let me give you a, you know, a little spoiler alert here. Because what he's saying in verse number two, he says, look, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Kind of like in Romans 8, where as sheep led to the slaughter. We'll get to that in a second, okay? Allow yourself to be out there on the edge and potentially open to attack. And he says, but you present your bodies a living sacrifice, you transform your mind, the renewing of your mind, the washing of the water of God's word. We'll, we'll see all that when that time comes. But living it out, in other words, really living the Christian life of ministry gives you the ability to do something. And that's that last phrase in verse 2. That you may prove what is that good and perfect acceptable will of God. It's not that you may know it. You can know the will of God just by reading a book. But you prove it. You put it to the test. You prove that what God said is true because now you have lived it. Now you have experienced it. And Paul has lived it. Paul knows what he's talking about. Verse number 36, it says, as it is written, and it quotes Psalm 44 and verse 22. 
So if you take notes in the margins of your Bible, it's Psalm 44, 22, where it says, Yea, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. It's almost an exact quote, right? We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And in Psalm 44, I want you to get this, the context, the doctrinal context of Psalm 44 is the Jew in the tribulation. And the, and the Jew in the tribulation at this time literally will be slaughtered like sheep by the Antichrist and sacrificed on an altar in the temple. And once sacrificed on the altar in the temple, I know this is gross, eaten as an offering. That's disgusting. That's very disturbing. By the way, have a nice lunch. <laughs> I gave you a couple of verses in your notes to check that out if you want to. That's not the Bible study. The point is this. The context from which Paul quotes in verse 36 of Romans 8 comes from that horrific scene. Okay? That's what he's referring to when he says, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep, not to the shearers, not just getting a haircut, to the slaughter. Right? Not much of that happening in modern America today, right? Thankfully. Not much of that going on in our daily lives. I mean, you know how it is, modern Christianity. We get offended if the air conditioner ain't set just right. I mean, we're always mad about, you know, music. Everybody's mad about music. Nobody likes nobody else's. You know how it is. Too loud, too soft, too much of this, too little of that. Couldn't hear this. I heard too much of that. Whatever. We think, you know, we think that we're suffering for Jesus if we show up to church when it's raining, you know. You know, it's persecution because, you know, I, I, I came to church and somebody snubbed me. You know, that's, that's, I'm suffering for Christ now, you know. I mean, that's American Christianity. That's where we live. A far cry from Psalm 44, 22, wouldn't you say? All I'm trying to say, listen, I'm not trying to make fun of us. I'm part of us, okay? What I'm trying to do is give you perspective of what God's trying to talk about. Because, by the way, if you're watching the news at all, there are places in this world right now where Christians are being slaughtered all the day long. Northern Iraq and Syria. How about that? I mean, literally, they are counted as sheep to the slaughter. Literally, Romans 8, 36 is current event headlines for some people in the world today. And I can't help but think that Romans 8, 35, 36, all the way down to 39 maybe just means a little bit more to them than it means to us today. You think of that? I mean, if you're going through it, verse 37, notice, this is a great verse. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Please notice the words that God chose. He said, nay, in all these things. He did not say, Nay, because of Christ, therefore escaping all of these things, we are more than conquerors. He's writing to those who literally are losing their lives. In all these things, in them, in the midst of them, we're still more than conquerors. That word conquerors, it's a unique word. I did a word study. It really only appears here. There's no real cross-references. I mean, there's a, the root of conquer and conquering. I get it. But the real comparison, another way that that word can be translated is overcomers. A conqueror, overcomer, someone who prevails, you get it. Well, the word to be an overcomer, that appears a lot. 
And probably the most common place where the overcomer appears is in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And so you have it in your notes, and you can just refer to it and go and look at it later. But Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 are seven short letters written to seven real churches in Asia Minor. They lay out for us church history. And if I can just so briefly remind you that all throughout church history, church history is stained with the blood of men and women who gave their life in defense of the Lord Jesus Christ and their faith in him. Literally, you have a Bible in your lap today because people died to protect it. I mean, church history is full of martyrs. And if you go through Romans, um, excuse me, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you look at all those seven churches, at the end of each one it says, to him that overcomes, there will be some sort of a reward. And not in every one of those churches does it have the exact same circumstances, but many of them, certainly the first several, it is just laden throughout a time of history where real Christian believers are literally counted as sheep to the slaughter. They are killed all the day long through the official Roman persecutions and all the different things that you can read about in a book like, for example, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And if you do that, you can see very clearly what is going on. This is, this is the idea in all these things, Paul says. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. You're not a conqueror because you got out of it. You might get out of it. And we as North Americans in this century, listen, we're getting out of a lot of it. We're very blessed. By the way, can I just remind us to whom much is given, much is required? We have a responsibility to help get the gospel to places around the world. We'll spend the next month getting ready for our missions conference talking about that. Overcomers. Listen, I think this passage of Scripture might mean a little more to them. Why? Because it's, it's more real to them. People face death and don't recant their faith. Why? Because of Romans 8, 35 through 39. That's why, because the truth is beautiful. So practically speaking, physical persecution can separate your body from your soul, but it cannot separate you from Jesus Christ. You know that that's really all death is, don't you? You understand that, don't you? That death literally is nothing more than a separation. You just separate your soul from your body. That's all. You continue to live. And if you're saved, you continue to live with Jesus forever. So you just leave this, I've used this term before, this earth suit behind, and you move on. And you ultimately get a spiritual body. You get a glorified body one day, okay? It's the greatest thing. But literally, even physical death, physical persecution to the level of martyrdom, it can separate your body from your soul. That separation can take place. But the real you that's inside your body looking out your eye holes, I mean, the real you, can never be separated from Jesus Christ. You understand that? Never. You are eternally secure in him. It's ridiculous to think otherwise. That's practically just something to think about. The Christian, the believer in Jesus Christ, has no, no legitimate reason to fear death. I get it, it seems unknown. I get it, we're not in a hurry to get there. But truly, there's no reason to fear that positionally, like Jesus said in chapter 19, the record of his crucifixion, it's finished. It's done. It's over. I have conquered. It's done. 
I've paid, it's it, it's your eternal security. Listen, you could not possibly, possibly lose it. And he goes on in verse 38 and 39, which seriously, great verses of scripture to memorize, great verses to keep at the tip of your tongue. I mean, it says, for I am persuaded, and we're going to go through a list. But before we do, let me just remind you, because Paul is persuaded in other times, in the similar context, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, for example, I wanted to share this with you, it says, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded, what are you persuaded? That he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I am persuaded, look, I'm not ashamed, I know whom I believed, and I am persuaded that God will keep me. I'm not keeping me. There's a group of Christians out there that think that salvation's a free gift, you couldn't possibly earn it, you put your trust in Christ and he gives it to you as your free gift, but now that he gave you this free gift, you have to work your tail off in order to keep yourself saved, because if you blow it somewhere down the line, whoop, taking that back, (laughs) you know, the repo man is coming. That's just not the case. That's just not going to happen. I mean, he is the one who gave it to you. He is the one who's keeping it. You don't have to do anything to get it. You don't have to do anything to keep it. That is, that's hallelujah season, man. Come on, y'all, really. Somebody, I mean, one guy, before we're done, just, just shout and give me one of those, man. I just feel like, all right, you ready? I am persuaded. We're breaking them into five categories, okay? I like doing stuff like that, so bear with me. That neither death nor life, that's natural life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, that's spiritual life, nor things present, nor things to come, those are all issues of time, nor height, nor depth, those are issues of space, nor any other creature, those are issues of matter. This is everything, y'all. Everything we understand in physical life is time, space, and matter. I dare you to find something not in that category. It's all time, space, and matter. That's all it is. Okay? God does things by threes. That's just how it is. Okay? Time, space, and matter. But you say, wait a minute. There's this thing called life. It's the spark that's on the inside. Life is not really any one of those. Time, space, and matter. We have life. Yes. Oh. But life is physical and life is spiritual. And we got it all. I mean, it's all covered. This is an all-encompassing list. In other words, there is absolutely nothing that is not on this list. I dare you to try and dream up something that doesn't fit in one of these categories. You can't do it. You absolutely can't do it. So I'm persuaded that neither natural, spiritual life, time, space, and matter shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, not capable you're secure. It's a sure thing. I mean, if you're with Christ, you got it made. You're in. You are secure in your relationship. Eternal life was given to you as a free gift. He won't cast you out. He keeps you. He gave his son so that you could have it. He's not taking it back. He didn't give it to you because you were awesome. He gave it to you because you weren't and you needed it. He's not taking it back. You are literally Christ's body. You are his body. Is the head going to be in heaven and the feet are going to be in hell? No, you are his body. 
The Holy Spirit lives in you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is the earnest of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The Holy Spirit will never, ever, ever leave you. If you went to hell, the Holy Spirit would have to go with you, and that ain't happening. You are secure, man. You are literally made the righteousness of God. He became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God and therefore have the free passport into heaven. Because you are God's righteousness, and that's where God's righteousness dwells. And there's nothing outside of your life that tries to impose itself on you that has the capability to separate you from him. It's just that good. I mean, it's just that good. So, you know, I put a little sentence at the end of your notes. Just roll with me on this one. You might worry about a lot of things, but going to hell shouldn't be on that list. If you know that you have truly surrendered your heart and your life to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I just say that? I mean, really, because just because you showed up in this building and this is Hallelujah Day, okay, don't mean that you're in. Most of you, I know, get it. But maybe you're here, and we're wrapping it up with this today, okay? Maybe you're here and truly, truly deep in your heart, God forbid, if some tragedy happened on your ride home and you died on a tragic car accident or something, and you, you truly stood before the Lord Jesus before lunch, and he said, why should I let you into my kingdom? You don't know what you'd say because you're not sure that you are a possessor of all this wonderful goodness we just talked about. If, if you are even just kind of wondering about that, can I just encourage you? that that offer still exists for you, it's not too late. You're still sitting on the really comfy chair you're sitting on. I mean, we're good to go. You can make your decision right now. You can surrender your heart and your life to Jesus right here and right now. And then all this wonderful goodness applies to you too. Let's pray together.